All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started. I think it's about that time. There was a handout when you first came in, if you were able to grab that. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name's Ryan Meyer. I teach uh, language courses and some New Testament courses here at the seminary. So I'm gonna today try to answer the question, at least partly, of what role does theology, or you could say presuppositions, play in studying a passage. So to give you kind of a sneak preview, we're gonna look at some of those pesky passages in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel that are often pointed to as being overly creative uses of the Old Testament. And then the argument usually says, if Matthew does it, maybe we should as well. And so I'm gonna to try to address that question. Uh, please forgive me for just sticking closely to the notes. I'll probably just keep my head down and try to keep moving along. That'll help me finish on time and Lord willing, then leave you some time for questions, okay? Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I'm thankful to be here today. I'm grateful that you have spoken to us. Uh, we're thankful for your son. I pray that he today would be honored and then through him, you would be honored by the way we listen to your word. I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly and accurately. And we ask for this in Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, so let's begin there on the front page talking about the role of presuppositions. We should all recognize that we bring presuppositions to the biblical text and that those presuppositions shape our interpretation of what we read in a given passage. None of us read scripture as a blank slate, nor should we. For example, Christians using the same hermeneutical methods differ over what Paul means by, and I'm quoting here from 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Is he referring to a final judgment where believers are welcomed into eternal life and unbelievers are sent to eternal condemnation? Or is he referring to a judgment restricted to believers? If the latter, what does it mean for a believer to receive what is due for the bad? Our decision about Paul's meaning is not only shaped by the grammatical, historical, and literary context of those words, but also by theological commitments. And those theological commitments could come from a variety of places. In other words, we need a grammatical, historical, and theological method when we study scripture. However, what should shape those theological commitments? Where should they come from? How do we know when our theology is wrong? What can we do to make our theology better? Our approach to the New Testament's use of the Old Testament is one way to illustrate how our theological commitments influence our exegesis. For example, Greg Beale writes, I remain convinced that once the hermeneutical and theological presuppositions of the New Testament writers are considered, there are no clear examples where they have developed a meaning from the Old Testament, which is inconsistent or contradictory to some aspect of the original Old Testament intention. However, there will probably always remain some enigmatic passages that are hard to understand under any reading. For example, he cites Matthew chapter two, among others, as an example of a passage that takes passages originally intended for Israel and applies them to Christ. He argues that the New Testament writers felt justified in this because of their belief that Christ corporately represented true Israel 
and that all who identify with him by faith are considered part of Israel. That's a theological statement, right? He admits that not everyone will agree with these assumptions, but he rightly suggests, I agree with him, whatever conclusion one reaches, it is not based only on raw exegetical considerations, but on the theological presupposition of the individual interpreter. So just to set the stage, what are some of the approaches to these so-called enigmatic or puzzling passages? So I'm going to quote here from Stephen Wellam because I think I agree with much of what he says, although I think he also raises some questions that we'll think about. So he says, since scripture is God's word through human authors, we discover God's intent through the writings of the human authors by grammatical historical exegesis. But given the diversity of authors, a canonical reading is necessary to discover God's ultimate intent. We can even speak about the fuller sense, or what's usually called census plenier of scripture, if understood along the lines of G.K. Beale. Beale argues the Old Testament authors did not exhaustively understand the meaning, implications, and possible applications of all that they wrote. Yet, as God gives more revelation through later authors, we discover more of God's intent concerning his plan and how the parts fit with the whole. He goes on to say, for this reason, the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament is definitive, since later texts bring greater clarity and understanding. The New Testament shows us how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. The New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament may expand the author's meaning in the sense of seeing new implications and applications. So one of the big questions is how do you parse out meaning, implications, and applications? However, later texts do not contravene the meaning of the earlier texts. But again, he's quoting from Beale, but rather develop them in a way which is, a consist which is consistent with the Old Testament author's understanding of the way in which God interacts with his people in previous eras of redemptive history. Scripture as an entire canon must interpret Scripture. The later parts must draw out and explain more clearly the earlier parts and theological conclusions are determined exegetically from the entire canon. That was a long quote. Why quote it? Well, I think Wellam's statements illustrate three things. Number one, the importance of the entire canon. Number two, the question of the role of the New Testament in understanding the Old Testament. And number three, the ongoing challenge of trying to differentiate between meaning and implications or applications. Specifically in this talk today, we're going to try to interact with what's commonly referred to as theological interpretation of Scripture. Uh, one of the footnotes is going to be to a free uh, chapter from Rob Plummer's book on 40 questions on studying the Bible. You can download that as a brief introduction. I'd also refer you to Dr. Snowberger's session that preceded mine, where he gave a very good overview of it. I'm going to assume a little bit of knowledge and just keep plowing ahead. But Pennington would be our first example of someone who would identify with the TIS movement. Uh, he writes here, uh, we might say, this is B, we might say that Holy Scripture has both a lowercase a author and an uppercase a author. The implications of this dual authorship are the following. We can and should use techniques and skills that we would use on any other human literature to help determine the human author's intent, historical and literary. So far, that sounds pretty good. But then he says, yet, at the same time, 
The divine authorship of Scripture means that the meaning of the text is not and cannot be limited to its author, human author's intent. Asserting a meaning of the text beyond the historical one is a necessary result of understanding the Bible, not just as a mere record of religious beliefs and events, but also as the word or speech of the living God who continues to speak through and from the word. A little couple extra words there. I'll be generous to my students because of that coming up. A little typo. Pennington goes on to point to the use of the Old Testament in Matthew 1 through 2 as an example. Quoting him again, he says, that meaning will often be at the level of recognizing the subtle twist and shift of the meaning of the original text now in its new fulfillment as used by Matthew. This is a real and powerful bonus meaning. Pennington notes how his approach is similar to a typological reading of Scripture. However, he prefers the term figural reading because, again, quote, it more readily communicates the atemporal, analogous nature of such connections without tying this nature to a particular historical development. Advocating for senses plenier or a deeper meaning is not new or restricted to those who would identify as part of the relatively recent TIS movement. For example, Donald Hagner, if you're familiar with him, uh, two-volume commentary on Matthew that's now uh, over 30 years old. He writes concerning the Matthean fulfillment passages, although the word fulfill is used, the quoted texts themselves are as a rule not even predictive of future events, nor therefore can we say that the evangelist does exegesis of the text, i.e. that he understands them the way their original authors intended them. Instead, we encounter in our author's practice, as throughout the New Testament, the use of what has been dubbed census plenier, i.e. a fuller or deeper sense within the quoted material, not understood by the original author, but now detectable in the light of the new revelatory fulfillment. Now, if I could just skip down there to point C, why Matthew? Why have I chosen today? Is this just my attempt to kind of pigeonhole my interest in Matthew into our topic? Well, in part, it is partly that. But it's also because I think these are very illustrative of the creative approaches that many writers are pointing to. So I say there in C, some instances of the New Testament using the Old Testament seem very clear-cut to us because we assume, i.e. we have a presupposition, that the Old Testament includes accurate predictions of things that happen at least centuries following the giving of the prophecy. For example, most of us would likely agree today that the prophet Micah, prophesying in the 8th century BC, predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Therefore, we would also likely assume that Matthew 2.5's use of Micah 5 in connecting Jesus' birth to the city of David is not controversial. However, three other uses of the Old Testament in the immediate context of Matthew's gospel, one before and two immediately after 2.5, present something of an interpretive dilemma and can serve as test cases for how theology is used in both TIS and other approaches. So one, just one more writer before we jump in. This is from Peter Leithart, another advocate of TIS, in his 2009 book, Deep Exegesis. He illustrates the importance of these texts. He writes, the authors of the New Testament do unconscionable things with the Old Testament. That's quite the statement, isn't it? I think he's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but still. 
E.D. Hirsch has, in the last few decades, been the primary, almost the only exponent of the view that textual meaning is the meaning intended by the author and that this meaning is stable through time. Hirsch admits that the significance of a particular text changes for readers in different circumstances, but this shifting significance is rooted in a stable verbal meaning. Any other approach to textual meaning, Hirsch fears, can only lead to relativism. If meanings change, then texts can be made to mean whatever readers want them to mean, which that sounds good to me. He goes on to say this all seems perfectly sensible, even obvious. It would be uncharitable, if nothing else, to attribute to an author things he or she did not mean to say. And if the meaning of the text changes with the seasons, then textual meaning appears pretty much indistinguishable from meaningless. It all seems perfectly obvious until we read Matthew. A reader of the Old Testament and a writer inspired by the Spirit finds something in Hosea 11.1 that Hosea could not have intended in any sense of the word intend. How do we account for that? So we will take up Leithart's challenge and briefly examine three commonly cited test cases in Matthew. So our first test case will be from Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. This is what the scriptures there say to us. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. With that last little bit, a quotation from Isaiah 7:14, and then Matthew helping us out by saying, which means God with us. So what is the interpretive dilemma or puzzle in this passage? Well, number one, it's commonly assumed, i.e. based on a presupposition, that Isaiah 7:14's sign must have had at least an initial fulfillment and a child born during the life of Isaiah and King Ahaz in the 8th century BC. How then does Matthew apply it to the birth of Jesus the Messiah? Some recent advocates of TIS have argued that investigating Isaiah's historical context leads to the conclusion that Matthew is doing something other than reading Isaiah using the grammatical historical method, with the implication that perhaps we should be doing something other in our Bible study in addition to the grammatical historical method. For example, Keith Stanglin, which will be another one of our conversation partners today, he writes this, by contending that the sign was not given in Ahaz's time in the eighth century BC, but was fulfilled only in Jesus, Origen and many Christian interpreters after him have missed out on an important dimension of the text. And yes, you did read that correctly. This is gonna be a passage where I agree with Origen. In this case, greater attention, and you got to really listen to this carefully. This is something. In this case, greater attention to the historical and literary context inspired by the historical critical method actually aids the Christological and spiritual interpretations. Notice that Stanglin appears to advocate for greater use of the historical critical method in the Old Testament in order to better understand the New Testament theologically. 
But would greater attention to Isaiah actually lead in the direction that Stanglin wants us to go? So then we're going to go through various approaches to this passage. The way I'll set this up is I'll typically have an approach that's from a more well-known commentary. My attempt there is to show that these approaches aren't new. They've been around for a while. But then we'll usually just skip right down to the more contemporary TIS writers. So we have the quote from Hagner, but let's go down to T Keith Stanglin there at the bottom. Stanglin writes, As with other so-called messianic prophecies, there is an original fulfillment that the earlier writer had in mind, one that applied to the immediate Old Testament community. There's also a sense in which Jesus, the Messiah, more perfectly fulfills the meaning behind the original prophecy. What does it mean that Jesus is our Emmanuel? It means that in Jesus and in the Spirit whom he sent, God is still with us to the end of the age. There's not a great deal of argumentation here by Stanglin. However, there appears to be an underlying assumption that while Isaiah's prophecy has a similar significance for readers today as it did for Isaiah's original hearers, readers, it must have an original meaning that's different from the meaning it has for today's Christians. But is that a necessary assumption based on the biblical context of Isaiah? While we may be used to talking of one meaning with varying implications, Stanglin's approach seems to be arguing for one significance based on multiple meanings. So that would be one approach. The second approach would be typology. Again, I give you information there from Turner's excellent commentary on Matthew. But we'll go down to another writer. This is Nicholas Petrosky. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but this would be B. He writes, the prophets would see the future and the first horizon of fulfillment would come very soon, all the while holding out the expectation that the first fulfillment is but the shape of something greater still to come. To illustrate, Matthew 1.23's quote of Isaiah 7.14 is famous enough. He goes on to say, We have in Matthew, therefore, a typological appropriation of an old story. The house of David was spared in Isaiah 7 through 8, and while it was eventually dethroned and the promises of God had gone unfulfilled for centuries, Matthew suddenly brings the focus back to the house of David. The point is profoundly this. Just as the Lord had saved the house of David from near death, a greater salvation is now coming forth as the Lord resurrects the house of David from the grave. Now a true virgin bears the son of David, and the Lord is proven true to his word. That would be a typological approach. There's also various writers here, I say number three, who take what they call a double fulfillment approach. However, this approach seems, at least to me, you guys can judge it for yourself, to be very similar to a typological approach. Both approaches present the same challenge. Does merely saying that an event is analogous to something predicted in the Old Testament, or even like something that occurred in the Old Testament, qualify as a fulfillment of prophecy? So number four, direct fulfillment of a prophesied event. As we saw above, many approaches start investigating Matthew's account with the presupposition that Isaiah 7.14 must have had a fulfillment in the 8th century B.C., but do we have indications that Isaiah intended this to be a prophecy about the coming Messiah rather than a prophecy about a child born in his lifetime? So what about the literary context? 
Well, the sign in Isaiah 7.14 is part of a prophecy that begins with a prediction of 65 years before Israel's enemies would be shattered. Reading from verse 8 of that chapter, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Furthermore, when describing his visit with Ahaz, Isaiah makes a point of telling us that his son, Shear Jashub, whose name means a remnant will return, accompanies him. Therefore, from the beginning, the prophecy indicates that it's looking ahead further than the life of Isaiah and Ahaz to a time when Ephraim will be completely destroyed and a remnant will return. Furthermore, the context of Isaiah 1 through 12 focuses on a child born to save the people of Israel from their sins and consequent exile and who will establish an everlasting and universal Davidic kingdom. Three prophecies concerning the distant future can be identified. The birth of Emmanuel, the birth of one who is mighty God, and the future reign of the shoot from Jesse's stump, even though these future events are predicted alongside near events. This context supports equating the child whose name means God with us with the king who is the mighty God. Well, what about the historical context? Does that help us? The historical details of the prophecy match the messianic interpretation, but not the birth of a child in the 8th century BC. Before the child promised in Isaiah 7 reaches the age where he can refuse evil and choose good, the lands of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel will be forsaken. However, the Assyrians did not complete Israel's conquest until about 65 years after Isaiah gave this prophecy, which would seem to match the prediction that began the prophecy. Additionally, the child in Isaiah 7 is born when he will need to eat curds and honey, that is, the subsistence diet during a time of famine or agricultural devastation. That'd be like us living on spam or something. You know, it's, it's not good food. This type of deprivation would likely have never been true of a child born into nobility in Jerusalem during Isaiah's lifetime. Unlike the people who went into exile for lack of understanding, I'm quoting there from chapter five, verse 13, this child will be born within the exile and he'll learn to obey his father. As the net translates verse 15, he will eat sour milk and honey, which will help him know how to reject evil and choose what is right. So it's important to note that the prophecy placed the birth of this child within a specific time frame, the exile, and for at least one specific purpose, i.e. to learn obedience. This fits with Christ, but not a Jewish boy in the 700s BC. I give you one last grammatical and lexical evidence, but we'll skip over that and we'll go down to the bottom of the page. Do we have indications that Matthew intends this to be a direct fulfillment of a predicted event? In this pericope, Joseph is uniquely referred to as the son of David. The only time in the gospel that someone other than Jesus is referred to in this way. It could be that Matthew is just emphasizing Jesus's legal right to rule. However, since the Emmanuel sign was specifically for the house of David, it's more likely that Matthew includes this detail because the house of David, represented by Joseph, is now finally seeing the promised sign. The house of David, quoting here in the eighth century BC, did not accept God's offer of sign, nor believe in the significance of the child who was promised. By contrast, Matthew presents Joseph as the descendant and heir of David, who does accept God's offered sign, and who does believe what God declares about the child present in the Virgin Mary's womb. 
Matthew's readers, hearers are invited to believe as well. Joseph does obey. He doesn't divorce her quietly. He believes the sign is true and he marries um, Mary. Right before Matthew finishes his introduction to Jesus, he quotes from Isaiah 9, 1 through 12. Thus, you could plausibly argue that Matthew has bracketed his narrative's first major section with two citations from the Emmanuel section of Isaiah, which would seem to support the idea, the idea that Matthew equated the child promised in Isaiah 7 with the child promised in Isaiah 9. Finally, while we cannot explore this further here, a child born into exile fits with Matthew's opening genealogy, which highlights the never fully resolved deportation to Babylon. Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew's key verse. That is the sins that lead them to exile. As Chow puts it, he will be born in exile to end it. Therefore, it seems best to conclude that Isaiah 7.14 directly predicted Jesus' birth. After all, as Origen stated in response to Celsus in the third century regarding Isaiah's historical context, what kind of sign then would that have been? A young woman who was not a virgin giving birth to a child. Test case number two. This is from Matthew chapter two, verses 13 through 15. Just to remind ourselves of the context, this is what the scriptures say to us. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. With that last little bit, a quotation of Hosea 11.1. Well, what's the dilemma? It's a pretty well-known puzzle, right? This text puzzles scholars because Hosea 11.1 appears to be referring to the Exodus led by Moses, an event that occurred over 1,400 years before Jesus' birth. As Blomberg puts it, Hosea 11.1 is a reference to the Exodus, pure and simple. So then you ask, why does Matthew tell us that Jesus' flight fulfills this passage? So how can theology help us solve this dilemma? The first option would be to seek some kind of census plenier or a deeper meaning. And I give you uh, some information there from an article by McCartney and Enns. It's still, it's probably 22 years old now, but we'll skip down to Stanglin, point B, for a more recent conversation partner. Stanglin refers brief, briefly to this passage when describing the allegorical method of origin. Stanglin writes, already in the Old Testament, the Exodus story is symbolic of salvation. And subsequent rescues, such as deliverance and return from Babylonian exile, are couched in terms of a new Exodus. He then goes on, this Exodus typology is given new life through the lens of the New Testament, which often depicts Jesus in the role of a new spiritual Moses who came out of Egypt, passed through the water, endured 40 days of testing in the wilderness. The topology is expanded in 1 Corinthians where Paul takes further details in the story and likens them to Christian realities. He goes on to say, therefore it is not with origin, but with the New Testament and especially Paul that one sees the beginning of Christian allegorical or typological interpretation of the individual details of the Exodus story. This time I won't agree with origin. Matthew Barrett, another advocate of TIS suggests, 
Matthew's use of Hosea assumes the validity of census plenier. The divine authorial intent in Hosea 11.1 goes beyond what Hosea understood at the time. A fuller meaning is present, though Hosea is unaware of it. It is doubtful Hosea had the Messiah in view, but it is certain the divine author did, as Hosea speaks of God's son. So I say one question to answer might be, does Hosea connect the Messiah, the Davidic king, to his prophecy? The second option would be typology. Again, I give you two more recent writers, but we'll skip to page 12, letter C, for Peter Leithard, again from his book, Deep Exegesis. He writes, as I understand Matthew, he's talking about Jesus's flight from Herodian Israel. If nothing else, the placement of the Hosea quotation links it more directly with Jesus's flight from Israel than with Jesus's return from Egypt. I'll just pause there for a second. I do think he's onto something. That's a good observation, and that's an observation that other people have made as they carefully read Matthew. It's more connected to the going than it is to the coming back. He goes on, if this is the case, then the major terms of Hosea 11.1 have come under the shadow of ironic quotation marks. I'm going to have to start using some air quotes here. Jesus is fleeing not from Egypt, but from Egypt. And it is not Israel the son who escapes, but Jesus the son. The words have taken on a new meaning in this new setting, but a new meaning foreshadowed in Exodus and in Hosea. And Matthew's use of Hosea, which would not make sense unless his ironic Egypt still retained its connection with the original literal Egypt. That is, the meaning of the quotation is lost unless we see that Herod is acting like Pharaoh, killing Israelite children. I've placed Lither under the typological approach because he describes his interpretation as an example of typology, but his approach does not appear significantly different from the census plenary approach advocated by Stanglin above. Both approaches draw our attention to the question of whether Egypt must refer to a specific geographical country southwest of Israel. I go through an analogy section there, but let me just skip to four what I'm calling here a direct fulfillment of a prophesied typological pattern. That's a lot to unpack, so we'll try. Hosea 11.1 may not be a prediction of a future event. I'll concede that. But by citing the opening verse, I would suggest that Matthew intends his reader to consider the entire context of Hosea's prophecy. Enns, who argues for the census plenier view of the passage, suggests that because Hosea's prophecy did not originally have verse numbers, and I might add that it didn't even have page numbers, it would have been tricky, Matthew's quotation of Hosea 11.1 might mean something like, this fulfills that part of Hosea that begins with, out of Egypt I call my son. I tend to agree. But if we heed Enza's advice and then examine Hosea's prophecy using a grammatical historical method, might it lead to a different conclusion than that of ends regarding Matthew's use of this ancient prophecy? I believe Keener is much closer to the truth when he writes, by quoting the beginning of the passage, Matthew evokes the passage as a whole and shows how Jesus is the forerunner of the new Exodus, the time of ultimate salvation. But does an examination of Hosea 11 support this conclusion? In other words, did Jose intend to write about something beyond what occurred in the original Exodus? 
Well, let's look at his literary context. First, we have to ask ourselves why Hosea himself was referring to the Exodus. Is it possible that we misunderstand Matthew's use of Hosea because we misunderstand Hosea's intentions, intentions communicated to us by his writings? An examination of the rest of Hosea 11 and the whole book reveals that Hosea, like many other Old Testament writers, was referring to the Exodus because their original time in Egypt served as a paradigm for the coming exile, which would require God to act a second time to deliver his people in what might be called a second or new Exodus. As one writer puts it, Hosea 11.1 is not merely a lesson in history. In the flow of the chapter, it shows how God's love in the first Exodus will drive a second Exodus from exile. Well, at this point, you might be asking, well, why all this talk of new Exodus or second Exodus? Is that something that is drawn from the text or is that something being imposed on the text? That would be a good question. The Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, predicted a new Exodus in which the Lord God would, and here I'm quoting from chapter 11, reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people, not only from Egypt, as in the original Exodus, but now from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean, which for them would have been the far reaches of the world. In other words, he will gather the exiles of Israel, the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth, or how Jeremiah 16 puts it, out of all the countries where he has banished them. And he will do this through the root of Jesse. So I'm back to Isaiah chapter 11. He'll do it through the root of Jesse, who will stand as a banner to which both Jew and Gentile would rally. Similarly, Micah, the prophet who also predicted the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem, describes this regathering as an event led by their king, who will see the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. The same passage quoted earlier in regards to Bethlehem. And he'll do this at a time when God will once more show wonders as he did when the people came out of Egypt. And if we continue to compare scripture with scripture, this king is also the servant of the Lord who is speaking in Isaiah 49, 6 and telling us of what the Lord had said to him. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Judah and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So while this leader of the new Exodus will be a new Moses, a motif that is ubiquitous in Matthew's gospel, especially in its opening chapters, he will more importantly be a Davidic king who will rule over a global empire. So going back to Hosea's prophecy, when you get down to verse five, it may be saying that Israel will return to Egypt. If you're familiar with Hosea's prophecy, this is one of the hardest verses to, to translate you can compare it in the English versions, but it says something to the effect of, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? But at least by verse 11, it becomes clear that the people of Israel will have to be regathered once more, quote, from Egypt and also from Assyria. It's clear from the context that Hosea is not simply describing a return from Assyria, because the exiles will also come trembling from the west, which would be the opposite direction. 
This might be described as a return from Egypt plus. That's, that's my attempt at a description. It's Egypt, but it's Egypt plus. That is a worldwide exile and would fit Moses' predictions regarding the people. If you recall from Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt on a journey I said you should never make again. In his prophecy, Hosea emphasizes many times God's deliverance from Egypt. And because of the foundational nature of this deliverance, Egypt stands for the great exile which is coming, after which the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. So I would suggest that the Messiah was originally connected to the prophecy of Hosea 11. So Matthew 2.15's use of Hosea 11, 1, is sometimes referred to as Christ recapitulating the history of Israel. Have you heard this term? It's a pretty common way of referring to what's happening here, that Jesus is recapitulating Israel's history. I think it's close to the truth. However, it might be more precise to say that Israel is recapitulating their own history in Matthew's story, just as the Old Testament prophets predicted, and Jesus as the King of Israel is sharing in this prophesied recapitulation. So the pattern that's already within the Old Testament itself, it's not something we get from the New Testament, but the pattern that was already set up in the Old Testament itself was Egypt, then Exodus, then a kingdom, but because of their failure to keep the law, it would be exile, which is Egypt plus, followed by a new Exodus, and then a new or restored mediatorial kingdom. To put it another way, Matthew is placing Jesus's life on this timeline, a place in history that Jesus shares with his people. And Matthew is also beginning, just like he did with Isaiah 7, to identify Jesus as the one who will bring this pattern to its good preordained conclusion. So in a sense, this is typology, but one that is already present within the Old Testament. That's my burden. It's, it's a typological pattern already in the Old Testament itself. In other words, the Old Testament predicted and described both the type and the antitype. Beale comes close to this when he writes, what Matthew sees was already something seen to some degree by Hosea himself. Another way to put this is that Matthew's typological interpretation of Hosea 11.1 was stimulated by Hosea's own typological interpretation of Hosea 11.1. Much of what can even be discerned by a broad grammatical historical exegesis of that entire chapter in Hosea. This typological pattern then, is, I give you another argument perhaps to support it. This is from the connection perhaps to Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24. But I say there, skipping to C, even if you don't find that argument plausible, Hosea himself has much to say about a return to exile and a future restoration on the other side of the exile. He also clearly indicates that this restoration will take place in conjunction with a Davidic king. Therefore, Matthew is consistent with Hosea's original message when he places Jesus within Hosea's timeline, so to speak. Jesus is born when the Israelites are living without a king or priest, arguably the most important verse in Hosea, perhaps in all of the 12 prophets. This is demonstrated in the fact that Jesus and his family must scurry off to Egypt, where around 1 million of their countrymen live as part of the diaspora because a murderous usurper currently sits on the throne in Jerusalem, an Edomite of all people. 
However, Esau's or Esau, Jesus's birth and God's protection of him are steps towards Jesus one day being the Davidic king who, like Moses, will lead his people back to their promised land in the last days. The final test case, and we'll go through this one quicker. The final test case is from Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18. Let's just remind ourselves of the passage. This comes immediately after the previous one. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under. Some people estimate maybe up to 20 young children in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And the quotation is from Jeremiah 31:15. The interpretive dilemma. Well, first of all, Ramah was the village around five miles north of Jerusalem where Nebuchadnezzar's army gathered. The captives from Jerusalem and Judah were being carried into exile to Babylon. We know that from Jeremiah 40, verse 1. Bethlehem is around eight miles south of Ramah. That should say Ramah there. I did it again. Bethlehem is around eight miles south of Ramah. But the two cities were already associated with each other in the scriptures because Rachel likely died near Ramah on her way to Bethlehem. Remember, that's a controversial point. Jacob's wife, Rachel, had been dead for around 1,300 years when Jeremiah describes the sad situation of the soon-to-be-exiles being gathered for deportation at Ramah. However, as one of the mothers of the tribes, and since her tomb was possibly nearby, Jeremiah uses, uses poetic language to describe her weeping and refusing to be comforted. Although this is poetic language, and Rachel herself is not weeping, Jeremiah is describing a very real situation where mothers would have wept uncontrollably for their sons. You, you can only imagine. But why can Matthew say that Jeremiah's words regarding those women in Ramah were fulfilled in the first century AD? Well, by now you know the pattern. We're going to skip over Hagner and Blomberg, two excellent Matthaean commentators. And in this instance, we're just going to skip right to my proposal, number two. I'm calling this the fulfillment of a predicted era. And I'll try to explain what I mean by that. And I'm going to start here with a quotation of Quarles, not because Dr. Quarles would necessarily agree exactly with what I'm saying, but because I think he sets this up nicely. And I've learned much from his excellent new commentary on Matthew that just came out. He says, Matthew cites the passage because Herod's slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem demonstrates that the Israelites are still in exile, still suffering the consequences of their idolatry and wickedness. Yet there is hope because the promised deliverer has come and he will restore God's repentant people as God has promised through the prophet. However, you should ask, we all should ask, is it legitimate to say that Matthew is speaking of an ongoing exile and that Matthew believes that this ongoing exile is connected with the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem? Is this a theological presupposition based on the text or imposed on the text? I believe that only a careful examination of Jeremiah's prophecy can answer this question. So we're not going to do a detailed exegesis of Jeremiah, but we'll just look at a couple quick points. First of all, who is Rachel in the original prophecy? Since Jacob's favorite wife had been dead for hundreds of years, it's clear that Jeremiah 
is using a figure of speech. So if Matthew is also using Rachel as a figure of speech, he is consistent with Jeremiah's intended meaning as long as he's using the figure of speech in the same way. Furthermore, we sometimes get sidetracked by the possible location of Rachel's tomb, but Jeremiah's prophecy does not say anything about a tomb. Matthew may have found it significant that Rachel died on the way to Bethlehem, but a decision about the location of the tomb is not necessary for understanding Matthew's point. Jeremiah intended Rachel to stand for the people of Israel, probably especially mothers or wives, similar to the common expression of daughter of Zion. Since Ramah was located close to the border between Ephraim and Benjamin, Rachel's direct descendants, Jeremiah likely found her to be a fitting picture to describe the very real pain being experienced in the tribal lands of her children. So a figure of speech, but a figure of speech that's referring to a very real situation. There were real tears being shed. Who is Rachel weeping for? In the immediate context of Jeremiah 31, she appears to be weeping for the tribe of her grandson, Ephraim, one of the tribes that went into Assyrian captivity in the eighth century BC. Therefore, when Jeremiah speaks of Rachel, she has already been weeping for over a century. And in the context, her grief continues until the exiles are regathered and the new covenant is instituted. Furthermore, since Ramah is mentioned again in Jeremiah 41 in conjunction with the deportation of the sons of Judah, it's reasonable, I think, to conclude that Rachel is weeping for both the exile of the northern and southern kingdoms and that this weeping was already predicted to be something that occurred over a long period of time. So that's what I'm referring to as a predicted era. In other words, Rachel weeping for her children was never meant to be a punctiliar event, like the birth of the child in Isaiah 7, but was instead a description of the evil age in which that child would be born. Furthermore, the context around Jeremiah 31.15 is positive, and this seems to be how the passage was read in early Jewish tradition. I'll skip over this great quote there from Shepherd's New Commentary on uh, Jeremiah but we'll get to C to wrap this up. So to begin to wrap this up, we can understand Matthew's puzzling quotations from the Old Testament, not only by going back to their original context, but also noting the way those passages' original context fits into the narrative flow of Matthew's story about Jesus. I would argue that a better understanding of the Old Testament passages' original context will help us see that Matthew is giving the same significance to those passage, passages as the original human authors. Jesus is the child born to a virgin during Israel's exile in order to learn obedience. He is the promised king born in Bethlehem who will one day gather his scattered brethren. When he was forced to move to Egypt, he was sharing in the plight of his people, their scattering, a recapitulation of their history already predicted in the Old Testament. For those who doubt that Israel had a problem from which they need saving, think of the Sadducees, the chief priests in Jerusalem, Matthew emphasizes that Rachel is still weeping. The exile continues. However, when Jesus moves to Capernaum, Matthew notes that Isaiah's prophecy is coming true, where the darkness of the exile first began on the northern borders, now a light has dawned. So let me try to wrap this up with some concluding applications for how this would impact our study of Scripture. 
Number one, our presuppositions regarding Scripture will affect how we interpret specific passages. If we believe that the Scripture is God's inerrant word, we should expect it to agree in all of its parts. And we should not be surprised when Old Testament prophets give accurate predictions of events that occur hundreds of years in the future. We must be on guard in our personal study against the possibility of being unduly influenced by biblical scholars who may make valuable contributions, but do not share these presuppositions. And there's another side to that coin that I give you in the footnote. But this point here, evangelicals advocating for a form of TIS have rightly emphasized this point. And I think I'm in agreement with them here. Number two, we cannot and should not read scripture without presuppositions, but those presuppositions should be supported and where necessary, corrected by the text. We always have to keep going back to the biblical text. The test cases above illustrated the importance of presuppositions, such as the relationship between Israel and the church, between a new exodus and Christ's second coming, and even the validity of speaking of census plenier. We are all influenced by tradition and experience, so we must all be on guard against presuppositions that are being imposed on Scripture rather than being required by Scripture. Number three, Matthew likely intended his gospel to be reread multiple times and for the Old Testament passages that he cited to be studied in detail. I believe Matthew went to great lengths to show that he was relaying the same gospel preached by the prophets. One way to think of the many Old Testament quotations and allusions in the New Testament is as a cross-reference system by which the New Testament writer expects you to go back and read the Old Testament well, just as he did. And I give you a quote there from Nolan's commentary. And finally, and I have to admit, this is just me going back to Matthean theology one more time. We should not assume that Matthew means for us to understand the new Exodus as a finished event. Instead, it is something that occurs at Christ's second coming. How did I arrive at that conclusion? By applying the grammatical, historical, theological method to many Old Testament passages, which assumes that they all are in harmony with each other and the remainder of Scripture. I could be wrong about the New Testament or New Exodus. I am surely wrong about some details presented today. I just wish I knew which ones. But the only way to determine that is by the continual right reading of Scripture and by listening carefully and charitably to others who are doing the same.